You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It is the last day in August, August 31st, 2015, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. And happy birthday, Holly, yesterday. Happy, yes, and happy this, birthday, is, this is Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio, broadcasting from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Sulbury Village, Pennsylvania, and our producer is Angel Espino. Say hello, Angel. Hello, Angel. And Nancy and Bill. Uh, thank you. And our hello. guest tonight is filmmaker and Ooh. friend of Christopher Lee. Very cool. Philippe Mora. So we're right, happy to Right. And we've been awesome. kind of yeah, he's we've been promising him kind of serve him up on a silver platter to Angel because it's just fun to hear people who love film talk to a guy who's been making films and has loved film and has all kinds of interesting stories and stuff. And uh, I wonder if you guys are going to bring up Wes Craven. I wonder if oh he's going to fit I, in. Oh, you read yes, my mind. Yes, I was just yes, about to bring yes. him up. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, uh, how does he fit in? But tell us about Wes Craven. Well, for anybody who doesn't know Wes Craven, he is, of course, the creator and director of the original Nightmare on Elm Street uh, he directed People Under the Stairs, Shocker, The Scream, all four of them. He directed them. Uh, legendary, iconic director. I mean, he changed the way that horror films are made. Uh, and I'm not even kidding. Like, the way the genre is done today is really because of the things he did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Even when Scream came out, the, the slasher horror genre was dead. And he but wait, revived but wait. it. You're going to find out. I was I was reading uh, back in Philippe. I thought I knew everything about Philippe, but it turns out he did one of those films that you're just now describing, called mm. Mad Dog Morgan. Okay. And it, okay, and it's an Australian film of the same era, and it seems to be um, they're re <laughs> they're re um, whatever they're re-establishing Animated? it. They're re oh no, they're re oh they're rebooting uh, it, rebooting it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. <laughs> so there's a lot of, and I'll link to that when, when the show is done, but they're rebooting it, and um, there's much talk about the same thing. And so um, I, I guess we should push that whole conversation into Philippe's lap, because what, how... Rebooting movies? Uh, well, like, the, like his movie, it was considered super extremely gory. Like, how did he get away with that much gore for like $32,000? Stuff like that. Oh, that's uh, easy, actually. Making This is the thing, Nancy. This is the, the crazy uh, truth. Making really gory movies is actually not very expensive at all. Mm-hmm. I understand. Especially but... doing it the old school way, like practical effects-wise. Right. Very inexpensive. Look, all the Friday the 13th movies were very you know, cheap when they did them. Uh, even the Hellraiser movie had a very limited budget, and that was very gory. Uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies had a limited budget. I think the first movie had like a $10 million budget, even less than that, which is about the budget for Star Wars, 77. So you could imagine, they, these movies didn't cost a whole lot of money. You can do a lot with really cheap practical effects and make it look really, really good. 
and a lot that's what a lot of these movies were really known for for exploiting the the you know the technology and the the stuff that they had at their disposal and not spending a whole lot of money that's what made new line cinema the nightmare on elm street series that franchise was so big and cost so little to make that it literally it gave birth to a network which is a new line mm. cinema hmm. <laughs> Well, I know that uh, Philippe was also uh, connected with Troma Studios. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot in common that, that you all will have. But, um, of course, I've never seen any of Wes Craven's films, Zero. Um, You've you're never right. seen Nightmare on Elm Street, really? No, no, I thought we saw Scream together. Mm-mm, never saw Scream. Um, Scream was the parody movie. That wasn't the... No, um, no, no. Scary movie was the parody to Scream. Okay, Scream. No, Scream, it, it, yeah, never Scream was like the legit one. one. Yeah. No, the idea of seeing young people just being killed has never been thrilling to me, or seeing anybody killed, actually, as the point or the plot of the story is never kind of what I want to watch something for. And I'm, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the only person who feels this way, but the people who do feel this way have to protect themselves and not let themselves get dragged in and, and people say, oh, you're such an idiot and stuff. <laughs> well, here's because the thing, Nancy. Like most people don't watch these movies to get you know that thrill of seeing teens or people get killed there's a mystery to a lot of these movies as you know there's a storyline there's a it's like a you know a clues episode you know or clues right, you know, remember the show that's the, it's what that's a lot the of these things are yeah i mean that's really where you, you look at these movies well, yeah the gore and the, the killing is all yeah, that but stuff why not is the added spice on top of the thing but yeah but you could have a mystery story as you well know um of any kind any kind of sherlock holmesy thing they don't always have to have blood and gore as their central theme. It could be a mystery of, uh, you know, I don't know, finding the secret of the pyramids or something. And there's lots of cool mysteries. I I don't want to, you know, just throw a wet blanket on everybody, but I just, and so since I don't enjoy these (laughs) and watch them, I'm interested in, and here's the big question I want to ask Philippe. Since his family really had a lot of horror in their real life, and he uh, he he periodically goes back to the concept of Auschwitz, not not only the concept but the uh, filming of Hitler stuff, swastika, right? And, right. Um, so he so I wonder what Heath says as a filmmaker. Why do filmmakers do gory movies when there's already gore in the world? Why? Do they feel they're helping the situation by doing gory movies, or because it's entertaining? It's just, it's entertainment. It's escapism. That's all it is. And I'm sure you ask you poll a hundred directors that do horror movies, and they're going to say the same thing. It's escapism. It's entertainment. It's a, a, a way to just escape reality. That's what a lot of these horror movies are, and a lot of them do have really. But is it shaping reality? That's that's my no. worry. No, because there's nobody entering your nightmares, killing you in your sleep. That's never going to happen. There's not a guy with a hockey mask killing people in the woods. That's not going to happen. It's not happening. It's not happened. Especially a guy you can kill over and over again and he comes back. It's cartoonish. That's That's, that's like the Roadrunner cartoons. The guy gets killed, he comes back over and over again. Bill will step in at some point. (laughs) No, no. I think Bill agrees with that. No, no. Uh, My attitude is that the more real they are, the more people are. I mean, I keep going back to why was James Holmes dressing up like the Joker in order to, um, when he attacked patrons in the Aurora Theater in Colorado. Yeah, but here's the I thing. Mean, he it, actually it, it could have been the Joker, but it could have been... World yeah, but it could have been any character. Batman he just picked, he just picked the Joker. In order to commit a mass homicide. 
You get what I'm saying, though? I mean, it could have been any character. Uh oh, um, the Burns are having some kind of internet issue. Are you guys back? Yeah, I'm I'm losing oh. Bill. Yeah, there. You guys are having some kind of internet problem. Bill, let me let me look at my Skypey. And I was losing you, little angel, but I know that you're the you're the ears that have to hear. And right. Keith, hi Keith, hi Keith the, Roland, and he's the overlord that will overlord us. Right. And let us mention right. that we're on the Dark Matter Digital Network, and right. we are. You said that before. The yeah. show yeah. right before Art Bell. If you've come in early, you've come into a really great show. Uh, same mm-hmm. kind of topics, same kind of everything. <clears throat> and we're huge fans. And tonight's Art Bell show is going to be David Darling. Um, now, meanwhile, is Bill back? I'm here. Yeah, I wonder what. <laughs> yes. Okay. So anyway. here we are. It just Bill, dropped off for a second. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were making a really solid point, though, Bill, about why uh, Adam Lanza dressed up like the Joker. But here's the thing. Uh, if, if it wasn't the Joker, it would have been another character. The thing is, you can't reason with psychotics. People are going to pick things that they're going to latch onto, whether it's the Joker character, or it's the Penguin character, or it's the Doomsday character, That's or it's kind sure. of a Lecter, or yep. it's anything. Even in the, when there were no movies out, no horror movies out, yep. people still latched onto things. And still Catcher in the things. Rye. Exactly. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. I mean, right. That's just human nature, and when you're psychotic and you're and you're crazy, you know certain things uh, might be appealing to you, and it just so happens it was the Joker. That's all it was. But Batman doesn't make people go and kill people. I mean, first of all, even in the movie Batman, if you watch the uh, Dark Knight trilogy, Batman makes a point of not using guns. He doesn't like killing. There's a whole purpose to the, the to what he does, and and that does not involve that kind of crime. So I mean, the messages in the movies are very positive. You just had a crazy guy who warped a character and you know used it to to fuel his own rage. It's similar to uh, to uh, the extreme Muslims who take a good religion and they perverse it and they do what they want to do with it, and and then they kill in the name of God and Allah, which that's not even true because God would never want you to do the stuff that these people want you to do. But guess what? They say it's in the name of God. It's just a different form of psychotic behavior. That's all it is. But it's all the same kind of like it's all psychotic behavior at the end of the day. Yes, Bill? it's all psychotic <laughs> behavior. But the idea, uh, but the idea is that the question is rather: um, Are people who are close to the edge pushed over the edge by inhabiting an, an avatar? That's the question. I mean, does the avatar make it okay? For people to do something if they're really close to the edge. Well, by avatar, that's, that's the question. Well, right, the avatar right. is the Joker. I mean, right. that was James Holmes. But you uh, mean by avatar a story, a persona that you can slip a into, ca- a, a right. persona, character, a, a character you can inhabit to do something that you wouldn't do as in your real life as a human being, but you would do as that persona. That's my question, and I think that's not yet answered. Well, it's it's an it's an interesting question, and certainly we'll certainly talk to Philippe about it. But um, in the meanwhile, do this has been a very quiet week for us, I think, in the Burns household. What about for you, Angel? Has it been, you almost had a hurricane? So there, there almost. you have that. Yes, almost. Yeah, but we we dodged another bullet in that front. So no. Well, are you it. guys? I. I I wrote to you and you laughed, but I asked if you have a basement, and it sounds as though <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we don't do basements here in Florida. We're like under sea level. And you know, it's funny, when I first started doing radio, there was a couple of trolls who used to be like, oh, what do you do? You do your show uh, from your mom's basement? Because the sound was really bad on Block Talk <laughs> back in the day. Right. So that was a running gag for a while for me because the sound was really, really bad, and I used to do it off my phone. 
Guys, that's not how you do radio, by the way. But I did that for about a good few months, and people you know, would use that as a gag. So it was funny when you mentioned it. That was part of why I laughed. It was like, I've heard that before. But no, we don't have basements here. You don't have basements? Not in my neck of the woods. I've I've never seen a basement in in South Florida. I would love one. But no, 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 not if not if you're under under the water level. But do you That's have a mandatory too, yeah. um, evacuation path that you have to take? Um, no, just get out of town. <laughs> so they don't make you get out of town. Um, well, we haven't had an issue where they would force us to get out of town. Um, I mean, the, the last big storm that hit here was Andrew in '92. Yeah, that was in '92 though, a long time yeah. ago. And, okay. you know, there's been storms along the way, like Katrina hit, you know, Florida, but it wasn't as strong here as where, you know, it did most of the damage in New Orleans. Uh, here it just kind of, you know, breezed by us. Uh, but we've had storms over the years, but nothing major or catastrophic. Now, I'm not worried about a hurricane. I'm worried about other things like tsunamis and the ocean level rising to the point that, you know, Florida is, still, you know, sunk under. That's what I'm more worried about than anything else. I'm not really and you And you heard well, it's Obama. in your lifetime, that's for sure. I hope not. Well, but you heard Obama talking about a particular city, not mainland USA, I don't think, but a particular city that's being threatened by becoming enveloped. And he was uh, he was saying it in context of if an enemy were threatening our cities, everybody would say, let's do everything we can to protect it. But this enemy is climate change or whatever you want to call it, the seawater. Right, right. sea and as I'm looking for it, you know, I didn't buy – it was a headline – uh, on Reddit, and I didn't bother to read uh, the rest of the story, so I'm not sure what city, but I can find it before perhaps too much longer. But you know, but but nonetheless, yeah, the cities, um, the cities in the Philippines, uh, I believe, are the first to be looking at. We have to leave this island and go away. Yeah. So well, yeah. I know, I know, all South Florida, like deep, deep south, like by the Keys. Uh, all that will be completely wiped out if anything major happened. And of course, I'm smart. I bought a house really close to the Keys. No, really? Really? Yeah, I'm about, yeah, I'm about two hours away, an hour away from the Keys. An hour and a half uh, from the Keys. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm that's really close to destruction and doom, Nancy. Well, really we, have a, we have some friends. We have family friends who are down there now. Um, you know, uh, a lot of East Coast people at the northern parts of the East Coast mm-hmm. uh, love to Florida to go down to Florida for anything, any reason and my, you know, my my sister's there right now. Actually, my sister's not. My my niece is there in uh, Disney World, I think. But um, some family is living on the Keys. You know, people just they 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 see it. They never want to leave. And it's the uh, weather is beautiful down here. I mean, yeah. It's summer year long. Yeah. You know, the, a- the running the running gag on SoFlo with George and myself and a few other guys. We've been posting every year since I've known them on Facebook. After there's like a, a you know winter season is over. I would post on Facebook a little meme that has a guy that uh, looks like he just came out of the snow and it says, survive another Arctic winter in Florida, 2013, 2014, whatever the year is. Yeah. And that's a little meme we put up every year. You'll see it at the end of the year when winter's over. Hey. You'll see that either You've on my on Facebook, Facebook or George's. Facebook a long time. A long time, Nancy. Very long time. Yeah. And I've been using memes like that for years just as a running gag because we don't have more than like a two, three day winter here in Florida. It's very short. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's sunny year round. Today, it was supposed to be a hurricane. It didn't even right. rain. It was, it was awesome. Well, I'm happy for you because I got mm-hmm. a little worried. And I've been under the weather most of the week. So I've been under the weather and and worried and all this. So I'm glad everything has worked out. And, uh, you know, and then the if something bad is to happen in September, which I really sincerely hopefully hope doesn't happen, um, you know, then that whole thing will 
Oh, nothing's gonna happen. And it, I, I'm sick of like doomsday prophecies and you know people predicting the end of the world and something's gonna happen. And ex planet X. I am too. To I am us. too. And in fact, it's nonsense. None of that is. None of that stuff is real. When people are gonna realize that it's just fear mongering. It's people putting stuff out there to sell books and and put fear in your lives. None right. of that is real. Because the fear, the fear is a real money maker for everybody but the it scared is. person. Well, yeah. a happy thing happened to me when I opened up my internet today, and that was seeing Kim Kardashian from last night's. Um, I think it's it was the VMA. It was the MTV. It, I think it was the MTV Awards, right? No, it was the VMA. Oh, okay. Same thing, I think, isn't it? No, MTV is music, or MTV is very different. VMA is uh, video, video music. Yeah, but what is yeah. MTV? Music, video. Music, yeah, but they're... I think, I think it's the same thing, Nancy. I'm just saying. No, 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 no. Anyway, what think, about Kim Kardashian? Well, maybe they are. I don't know. Actually, it, I'll look it up. Um, but they're calling it the VMAs. They're not calling okay. it MTV stuff. I, but you're right. I think the trophy is that stupid... It's by MTV. Yeah, it's the MTV VMAs, the Video yeah. Music Awards. Yeah. And they gave Kanye a sort of like a lifetime award, award and he's sort of up there supposedly saying he's going to run for president. But 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 Kim is with child, and she's just exploded as a body, and she's only a few months pregnant. She her baby's not due until um, December, so we've got the entire fall to watch this woman just blossom because her husband will not let her dress like a normal person. You know, he feels he has to dress her. I don't know if it's her husband or if it's the show that she's on that makes her dress kind of No, slutty. it's her husband. Her husband feels he's a designer. That's how mm -hmm. it all started. Yeah, if you look kind of back in their relationship, um, he always I, I really don't think about the Kardashians mm -hmm. like that. Well, <laughs> so, you should. It's very interesting. I don't I mean, care about them. Oh, uh, my goodness. <laughs> well, Kanye, well, what about Kanye West? I mean, he's a singer of some sort, right? I have no interest in Kanye West either. You know what's funny? <laughs> Zod Ryder from PSN. Right. He he actually uh, knew Con Kanye West before he was famous. They worked together at a call center uh, for a couple of wow. years. And he was buddies with him. He used to go to lunch wow. with him all the time and stuff. And he always you know, would tell me that he was like the nicest, most humble guy that he, you know, that he was really cool and this and that. Wow. What happened? Supposedly he's completely changed. <laughs> it just, what happened? Day. I don't know. I don't know. Did he, did, did Ryder say he seemed like the world's biggest egomaniac? No, not no. at all. He always had, he had nothing but good things to say about him, which, which shocked wow. me. Wow. wow. Well, uh, people are seeing, uh, as I said, because her husband decides he wants to dress her, he won't let her just be a pregnant woman with a shmata. And in fact, did Philippe's family come from the shmata? But no, they never, they were no, always no, artists. No, no, no. No, they were artists. But whose family, there's another person we know that Philippe, every, it seems like we always ended up talking about shmatas around Philippe. Um, a lot. Color me, are, color me ignorant. What's a shmata? What is that? A shmata. It, it's um, it's a, a, a it's a Yiddish word. It's a Yiddish word, which actually means rag. For yeah. a loose for a loose garment on a woman, a shmata. Something that just kind of hangs loosely, like a. So moon. it. So if you call a woman a shmata, you're really insulting her badly. That would be pretty much an insult. But more. But what's interesting is that is the Jewish term for the. Uh, fashion industry, you you know you uh, you work with shmata, you know you work in the shmata bunch of shmatas, shmata yeah. business, and so in fact, what's making me feel lots and lots and lots better? I've been feeling sickly. I think I have a <coughs> something, a flu bug or something, and it's on its way out. Thank you. Bill cooked me a wonderful dinner. Um, just 
you know, all kinds of good ingredients and it's on its way out. And so, but I'm also watching the brand new project Runway and that's all about the Shmata industry. Um, it's all about the garment industry. It's all about New York. Uh, but the th- great thing about Project Runway, and you, Angel, will not get it for me um, on Plex, which saddens me. But Shush, woman. We don't speak about that on air. I know, I know. But it, but I started down that down that line. But anyway, but but I was telling. We I was, say it's Netflix. And we yeah, keep it there. it's Netflix. And I I um, was telling Bill last night. You know this this ta- this takes away Angel's street cred. He can't you know ask his friends. Do you have any Project Runways in your garage? No, 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 no. Yeah. But anyway. People will start looking at me all weird. I'll start getting like You know what? If you start like, watching mm-hmm. this, you will be shocked at how hooked you get because it's the Not story. Happening. No, it's the story of 16 people who have to come up with solutions on the 16 spot. reasons why I don't want to watch it right there. Oh, my goodness. There's always <laughs> naked There's always naked girls. Every show you get a little nakedness. I could see that on the internet. I see that. And, um, and, and then, you know, it's... It's so much more. It's creativity. It's it's uh, competition. All that Not stuff. Anyway, so it's healing me as we speak, uh, Project Runway. But my little uh, thing called experience. What what is the thing we get our movies from? It's Comcast something. Comcast. Yeah. Xfinity. 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 They've yep. put. They've lined up. For, it looks to be for free all fourteen seasons, and so I'm madly going to you know <laughs> have a vacation and watch all of them or many of them that's a lot of project runway slow week on huh, nancy <laughs> well i'm still in the healing phase you know so i'm i can of, tell yeah you do what you do <laughs> yeah, yeah, Indubitably, yeah. actually <laughs> next week actually next week longmire the uh, the longmire series drops on netflix that's a uh, netflix that's going to be exciting yeah, and I've taken, away my, um, I've taken away my uh, suggestion to Angel to watch Revolution. I don't think I can take much more Revolution. Um, it's <laughs> you just, got all Revolution down, huh? <laughs> uh, I mean, I didn't watch Lost because every time I, I, I tuned into Lost, it was always the same scenes, you know? Was, they were always doing the same thing with the same, you know, and then a character would reappear, et cetera. And that's what this is, ha- you know, anyway. It, so I, I don't recommend it anymore. Well, it's a, it's an ongoing storyline with the same characters, and it's it an is it of a is. But the, yeah, but the problem is I don't know. The problem with J.J. Abrams is that the stories simply peter out into nowhere. Like it reaches a point where the actual storyline simply disappears, and you're simply dealing with these reemergences of characters and moving forward in time yeah, and back in time and big, forward big, in time. And, and, and after a while, what you're saying is that the story really has no point anymore. I mean, I understand what he's doing. It just doesn't... But doesn't it make you frustrated that the really big premise is lost? The premise of somebody turned off the power... Um, and the way they did it in this case, which they're using for other dramatic reasons, is they did it with little nanobots that kind of sucked all the electricity out of the air. And then the way you would turn the power back on would be to kill the nanobots, right? It's kind of simplistic way of doing season one. And then pretty easy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so who did it? Uh, in what cahoots with the, you know? In, besides, as a publisher, as a person who has worked in print my whole life. I can't help but notice the, the, the weird nostalgia that is shown in this series called uh, Revolution, in which an old penthouse 
which is really all, you know, like it's just been so looked through. It, you know, in other words, you don't have digital anymore. You have no electricity. So all of a sudden, the fantasy worlds of print, you know, suddenly take prominence again. And there are a lot of people, I think, who are sh- still, you know, in shock at how the internet has taken so many professions away in such short time. Yeah, but it's also given a lot of professions in a lot it of has, different avenues for has. people to make money. Look, for example, it and, and, here, and here, here's something that's crazy, Nancy. You know that right now it's actually easier for an independent artist to make money than it was 25 years ago? And I'm talking about yes a music artist. Yes and no. Yes and no. And here's the big thing. As an, I, I would would consider myself an independent artist, and Bill, on the other well, hand, I'm talking about music. I'm talking about the music business, music industry. Right, but any independent artist, if you're an artist to start with, you're going to be a sensitive type. Yeah, but and follow me on the music business here for a second. Part, follow where I'm going. But you have to be your own PR person. You have to be your own business manager, or find one. You have to do it all yourself. When you would sign over to a company, you could just be an artist. And yes, be pampered and, a bit. And, and they rape you and give you very little. Doesn't profit. matter. You can still do work. But here's they the thing: still with the you. with the internet, it's so much easier now to get a little team together, a group of your friends who can help you out. Yep. And then they stab you in the back, stable. and then you're then uh, you're back. Yeah, it's been working for a lot of people for the last five six years uh, that are making a ton of money of on the course, internet. Of course, and I'm happy for that. But I'm just saying it's different. There was a system in place, and if and and it's very disorienting. Yeah, but to it, those it was a system that the artist always rebelled against, and it was uh, exactly. You know, had but it was the with. only system that we knew, and it was that a corrupt I'm... and crooked system. So it was time for a change. Right, right. I understand that, but and and so I, the older folks, should look at the internet with like great. Uh, interest because younger people never knew the bad system. Old people are saying now we have a choice between the bad system and the and the new system, and I'm saying that it's very confusing and there's a lot that is not helping artists in the new system that you don't know yet. Um, but as you get further down the line, and I'm I'm sort of beginning to see that sort of, in other words, the studio system had a purpose. Had a, had a reason for being. That's really what we're talking about. The studio system versus United Artists, okay? Uh, in, which an, in which an actor or a musician, they would sign up with a group, and the group would take care of them, or the corporation, you know, and take all their money and use them like cattle. It's true, but... Oh, yeah, that's great. That, yeah, it's a great system. But... Oh, no, but, but the, no, but the studio system, the thing of the studio system was that the studio system originally, it was like this one vertically integrated business from inception all the way to distribution. And gradually that began to get broken up. So... Um, is this system any better than the studio system? I mean, the studio system, in terms of contract players from the, from the 1930s straight through the 1950s, that was replaced now with the agency system. It's really the agencies that now control the talent and the distribution, and in some cases, the financing. Right, right. And people, yeah, and then independent people have chances that they didn't have before. But there are also lots of pitfalls, is all. But I do think yeah, what's going to happen. But you, you yeah. got to remember now, you can put music online, you can put you know books online, you can put a lot of stuff yourself, and there's mediums in the internet now that can help you make money 
in a completely different way. And you can actually own your own rights to your to your material, own your masters, be mm-hmm. independent, and actually make your own. You know, make more money than you would before. Look, there's artists that are making more money selling less records right now than they would if they were selling a million records. Right. You know how right. you know how many artists in the '90s uh, were broke, even though they were selling millions of records, and they were still living broke. Oh sure, that right. was one, and that I think and I think the internet the music industry. Yeah, I think the I mean, internet that, that was uh, that was a big premise in the movie Straight Outta Compton that came out recently with NWA. Right. I mean, how they were getting you, screwed out of all this that? money. Oh, it's a phenomenal movie. I've seen it twice already. It's a great movie. Really, really is. Not because I'm a hip hop junkie and I love NWA and and all that stuff. Because there was a lot of stuff in the movie that they actually didn't tell you. Uh, that they should have. Oh, yeah. There's stuff that they kept from the movie which they should have put in there. Certain well, that's things the that happened beating. historically. Uh, when uh, well, Dr. There, Dre uh, beat up Dee Barnes. Yeah, yeah, a couple things that they, they omitted from the movie. Uh, but uh, overall, it was a, a really well-acted, really strong performance by everybody. It was a really good movie, well-edited. But isn't it also a huge moneymaker? Huge moneymaker? Oh, it's a humongous it hit. It yeah, it's yeah. over $140 million already uh, domestically. It's, uh, it costs like $28 million to make. So it's a huge profitable movie. It's it, it, In fact, and, they're already talking about making a sequel with Tupac in the sequel. So. And who did the movie? Who was the uh, production company? Do you know? Don't know the exact production company, but I know the director is uh, F. Uh, Gary Gray, who's directed nothing but great movies. I mean, uh, down the line, he's done Set It Off, the movie Friday, which is a, a hood classic. You know, it's a great movie, real funny movie. Um, I mean, he's done just uh, just everything from action to uh, you know hood movies. He's done everything in between comedies. You know he's a really really good director. Uh, if you haven't seen his work, check out F. Gary mm-hmm. Gray. Oh, we started watching Little Boy last night. Oh yeah, I wanted to think? tell you. Yeah, um, we we had it went off. Sometimes we have a okay. We we got just we have two seconds, but we we got a new thing called Roku. Long story, and well, that's it's not new. kind You've of been having little Roku. Oh no, no, no but this it's a whole new the box new one. with a whole yeah. Oh. It's, Gotcha. Roku's a great company. You you can keep the old one and not really have to. But I figured the new one would be so cool because it's got a voice activated remote control, which could be could be useful. Um, you could just yell at it, you know. Um, and it also you put has speakers in. You can put speakers a speaker. In. You know, you could turn the remote into a. You put you put earbuds in, and suddenly you can watch TV silently. You know, which is great for us because sometimes one of us will be on the radio and the other person wants to keep watching TV. So it works in the couch check out, area. Check, check this out. This is the uh, directorial um, resume of uh, F. Gary Gray. Uh, his first huh? movie was Friday in 1995. Followed that up in 1996 with Set It Off. 1998, The Negotiator. Great movie. I don't know if you guys seen that. Uh, in 2003, Men of Part with uh, The Rock. Uh, then he did The Italian Job. Then he did The okay. Movie Be Cool. Okay. Be I've cool. Definitely was heard. The yeah, you've heard of, of the talent job. I um, think that's cool. first. I would say, just violence-wise, right? Uh, well, the negotiator. Well, oh. the negotiator was uh, Samuel Jackson, right? There right, but it's violent. Right They're all violent. And, oh yeah, it's very violent. Well, a little bit, yeah. And be cool is the follow-up to uh, Get Shorty with John Travolta. He did that. Also, he uh-huh. directed that. I like Get. He did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And probably my favorite in his resume is uh, be- besides uh, Straight Outta Compton is Law Abiding Citizen. Which okay. I don't know if you've seen that movie. That is a phenomenal movie with uh, Jamie Fox. Uh, he plays yeah. a, an attorney in the movie uh, who is uh, literally uh, putting a person into in prison uh, for something he didn't do, and he's framed, and he has to you know figure out who killed his wife. And it's a very good movie. Yeah, I don't sounds give cool. Anything away. It's just an awesome movie. Go yeah. check it out. Law-abiding citizen. So I mean, okay. great director. 
Okay, and we cool. are up on our break now. And we are, yes. Uh, and so let us come back, everybody, with our guest, Philippe Mora. We are your co-hosts, Bill and Nancy Burns, on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we will be back after these messages with our guest, Philippe Mora, talking about the late and great Sir Christopher Lee. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. Supermanhomepage.com Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more.
And we are back on Future Theater Live with our guest, motion picture producer, filmmaker, Philippe Mora, director. And uh, Philippe, thanks for joining us. Really glad you could make it. And um, we're going to talk about Christopher Lee, but also a lot of your own films, because I know that um, you've been hard at work on setting up some new films. Nancy had a bunch of questions for you about some of the films you've, ha- uh, you've done in the past. And of course, we're all mourning uh, director Wes Craven. Yes, I know. That's very, very sad um, that he passed and uh, so many interesting movies he made. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Nancy and Bill. I always enjoy talking to you, uh, whether anyone else is listening or not. <laughs> oh, people are listening. <laughs> thank you. Oh, boy. Thank you yeah, very much. <laughs> yes, they're listening. So, well, you, um, know, you know, Philippe, right after our show on this network is the, uh, the famous Art Bell has come back to radio. Oh, and that's he's great. Back, yeah, he's back doing a show every single night uh, from midnight uh, in the desert. It's called Midnight in the Desert. Right, and we right. get, a, you know, and I say we because we're all a team here. We get a lot of Australian listeners. And so, you know, intro, you know I hope that uh, if, have you been on our Bill show before? I don't think I have been on the Art Bill show. I may have been on it uh, in the flurry of activity over communion some time ago. Possibly. Um, but but Possibly. I don't recall the exact details. Possibly. Cool. Yeah, well, so now it's a whole new era. He's very independent, just the way we are. Uh, everybody on this network can pretty much say what they want to say. And, um, and the network is just but growing. But we got to keep it clean. We have to, well, of course, but we are clean. Yes. Clean as, right. as whistles. But the thing about it is the network is um, growing pretty exponentially. So we used to have a few listeners, but now we have a lot. So Fantastic. Yeah, I'm proud yeah, of that. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, that I didn't know, I mean, I knew that you directed Christopher Lee in uh, two motion pictures, but I didn't know how, how, how close you were with him and how friendly you were, and nor did I uh, realize until I saw a lot of obituaries after his death how much Christopher's Lee's, how much Christopher Lee's life determine the kinds of roles he did. I mean, when you think about the fact that here's a guy who actually was a cousin of Ian Fleming and played in um, one of the James Bond movies, how he knew J.R.R. Tolkien when he was at Oxford and, of course, was Saruman in, in um, the, uh, in, uh, the uh, motion pictures. Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings motion pictures, yes. two and three. So... Um, uh, Look, that was fascinating yeah, okay. to me. Well, he was an honorable Christopher actually. Lee is absolutely an amazing uh, uh, a man. He was an amazing man. Yep. Um, the, the gravitas that he could show in his roles, no matter what kind of movie it was, he had this kind of gravitas. And I'm sure that that came from his experiences in World War II where he saw a lot of tragedy and people being killed, and where he was involved personally in arresting many of the top Nazi officers who'd been involved in war crimes. So there was a very serious side to him. And I know from my own family, my father was in the French Resistance and was involved in a lot of hair-raising stories. These heroes didn't really like talking about it. 
And my, I'd ask my father to tell me about it. He'd say, look, the real heroes are dead. I don't like talking about it. No, uh, Christopher, yeah. Christopher, Christopher Lee had another reason not to talk about it too much, which is that he was not allowed to because under the Official Secrets Act in, uh, in the UK, which is very strict, anyone involved in intelligence matters, even going back to World War II, is not allowed to talk about it. Now, let me tell you uh, how serious that was. We made um, Howling 2, I guess it's 1984, behind the Iron Curtain. And that's when Christopher told me a lot of stuff about what he had done because he'd been involved in the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, mm. uh, uh, a mastermind behind the Wannsee Conference, and the only top Nazi that was assassinated by the Allies in World War II. Well, Christopher was deeply involved in that uh, assassination, and in fact, uh, I went with him to the church in the middle of Prague. The Nazis cornered the uh, Czech partisans who'd been involved and uh, drowned them, and Christopher went and paid tribute. So, and then he told me you know, he'd been involved in hunting down Nazis. He personally arrested Ernst Kaltenbrunner, a, a top Nazi. Uh, he said he put the noose around his neck. He didn't pull the, the lever. But um, okay, so he told me all that, and then I, I and then you know, I guess it was in the nineties. Uh, I visited him in um, London in his apartment and he showed me a room full of Nazi insignia and SS insignia that he had personally ripped off these epaulets from because he had an incredible collection of memorabilia. Wow. But what he wow. told me, which was even more interesting in retrospect, is that uh, intelligence officers had just visited him. That was in the 90s, early 90s. They had just visited him and warned him to basically shut up so don't, don't, don't forget, yes, time's gone by, but you are still under the official secrecy. So a lot of what he, could, what he did, um, like many people involved, he couldn't, legally he, he couldn't talk about it. Well, what, what um, fascinated me was the fact that he was an executioner at the Nuremberg trials. He was, and, and I just, I hasten to add, that's, he said he, he was involved in actually, I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, this is the man who played Dracula. It's hard to believe, but he put the noose around their necks. Um, and uh, he was also involved in, in an extraordinary thing, which is the, there, was, um, there was a list of uh, concentration camp uh, war criminals, uh, heads of concentration camps, torturers, like the really, look, all the Nazis were pretty bad, but they were like ultra bad guys. Mm. And um, Churchill had a list uh, supplied to him of um, these criminals that uh, a group within the British government, they didn't want to waste any time or money putting them on trial. They wanted them executed. That, which is, of course, totally illegal. But mm -hmm. Churchill, okay, Churchill okayed a list of people that could be summarily executed. Wow. And for two to three weeks at the end of the war, um, these British, uh, this British group were going around knocking on doors, and uh, you, Heinz Schmidt, for example, and a guy would say yes, and they'd shoot him on the spot. Wow. And uh, Christopher was involved in that group. Um, wow. And well, did they get many got, of them? 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know. He was circumspect talking about it, but he was involved in the group. But it was mm-hmm. stopped because it got out of control. And uh, and as I say, it was highly uh, highly illegal. But you know, it's the end of World War Two. Uh, the 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 Allies were stupefied when they found the concentration camps. And mm-hmm. in fact, uh, Eisenhower, of course, who's deeply involved, he w- he went to one camp, and he Eisenhower triggered the filming of Eisenhower said, "No one's going to believe this if we don't film it now." And yeah. he got John Ford and a whole lot of other great directors uh, instructed to film this immediately. And, right. and Eisenhower was right, because if he hadn't organized the filming of the camps on the spot, uh, well, we wouldn't have a lot of evidence. Well, Philippe, the but, word went out to all the men. My father was very young. He was 18, 19, thereabouts, when he went in. And he was a photographer. And he brought home those photos. And I saw them when I was really, really little. Um, they were all told to photograph. It, it went all through yeah. the ranks. Yeah, It's, it's incredible. And there's a, there's, they showed a film at Nuremberg, uh, the Nuremberg Trials. And... Um, in the film, there's an affidavit from the head of 20th Century Fox Special Effects saying he studied these films and they're not faked. And uh, now, of course, even that of Eisenhower, uh, because mm-hmm. now these uh, revisionists are saying that those films were faked. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you know, Christopher Lee comes out of this incredible real history his entertain from the entertainment side, he was just a terribly good actor and uh, with a great sense of humor. And uh, Bill, you mentioned that we are great friends. Um, and one of the things that uh, did bond us uh, uh, was his sense of humor. And uh, when I asked him to sing um, a song about alcoholism in um, The Return of Captain Invincible with Alan Arkin, he just loved it, and that, that was a song written by Richard O'Brien of Rocky Horror Picture Show fame. Oh, cool. And uh, Christopher, he, he, well, he's on record in many places saying that song is one of the favorite things he ever did. That, mm-hmm. oh, that's true, and, and, and one of the things that also fascinated me was the reason he said he, he got into acting in the first place in motion pictures after the war was that um, someone said he was too tall to be a leading man. He was 6'5 or 6'6. So the only role he could play was the Frankenstein monster, and that was one of his first roles. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. You know, there's a tradition of actors being spies. Um, now there's a, a, a great one is Noel Coward, who went to Churchill and said when the war started uh, and said, I'd like to uh, do intelligence. And Churchill said, well, that's ridiculous. Uh, 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 um, and, no, you're, and Noel Coward said, well, that's exactly the point. No, no, one, no one's going to believe that I'd be doing any intelligence. But the fact is, I get around to every high society party worldwide. Uh, I have entree to everyone. I know what's going on. I can... I can re- find out and report to you. And, and, and Churchill said, okay, all right. So his first job was to come to Hollywood, Noel Coward's first job, as a spy, and report on all the actors and what was going in Hollywood mm. about who was pro-Nazi. This is before mm. Pearl Harbor. 
And mm. Churchill was very concerned about the power of Hollywood and which way it would go because there were very pro-Hitler uh, yeah. uh, people in Hollywood. Well, Errol Flynn, so, for example. So, sorry? I mean, Errol Flynn was, uh, was very known as pro-Nazi and there were thoughts that he was actually spying for the Reich. Yeah, there was a lot. There, there, look, there was a lot. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to get into name calling at the moment, but Victor McGlack, Victor McLaughlin, and there was a whole group of very mm-hmm. uh, right wing uh, people. But don't forget, this is before Pearl Harbor, and before well, the Pearl Bush Harbor, family also fall into the category, don't they? The, uh, Prescott Bush. Yeah, well, yeah. Prescott it, Bush was financing it, Hitler. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. This this was all before Pearl Harbor, and it was quite fashionable to be pro Hitler. It was not unusual uh, to, uh, in fact, there's a fantastic book called uh, Trading with the Enemy by the late Charles Heim, where he listed all the American corporations who were funding yes. Hitler. Yes, and, I know that. Uh, and, and, and it's startling. It's startling. It's, the whole thing is startling. But Christopher Lee, getting back to Christopher, he knew all this stuff. Um, and um, I think it, I, I almost think, you know, show business was like light relief for him. Yes, it was, uh, um, and 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 he enjoyed. He became such a phenomenal cult hero when you realize. And and you're talking to editors about a, a Christopher Lee biography. One of the fascinating things is how he managed to uh, put himself or or got put in all these very uh, highly cult movies, like the James Bond films, like um, yeah. Lord of the Rings, but also Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I have, I have, uh, I mean, I, this is, I'm totally speculating now, but now knowing more about um, in British intelligence and the history of the whole thing, uh, I, I was thinking back to Howling 2, which we shot, was one of the first films shot behind the Iron Curtain in 1984. And I have no doubt now, in, and I, I'm speculating, but personally I have no doubt that Christopher re- reported back to the British government on what, was going on in Czechoslovakia under Russian occupation in that film when, when we, while we made that film, and um, you know, but the, once you're in but, intelligence, apparently you never you never quit. Yeah, but basically they're 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 living off of your dime. I mean, it's your production company and your set, right? And the government is not paying you. Um, well, but that's just, the whole tradition of intelligence. I mean, uh, that's not unusual, Nancy, honestly, <laughs> because they, they always use these. They look at the history of the CIA. I mean, there's so many different companies that were actually run by the intelligence people. And mm-hmm. you know what? Why not? If you're going to be an intelligence, I mean, you're going to use everything you can. You know what I mean? I, I'm not making a moral judgment on it. I just think it's, it'd be normal operating procedure. Mm-hmm. Well, when you were in um, Czechoslovakia, that was after... Uh, and that was after uh, the Prague Spring, right? Yes. Yeah. Look, it was rigidly controlled. We, were, um, we weren't allowed photocopiers or walkie-talkies or anything like that. Instead of walkie-talkies, they gave me six guys on bicycles. So it was wow. like making a movie. Like, like I'd want something, I'd write a note, and the guy would ride off on his bicycle. It was like making well, a movie in the First World War. But you know what? When you got used to it, it worked just fine. But why, um, did, you choose, why did you choose to do it that way? Did you have... Uh, was, that in, was that your choice? 
No, it's a crazy story. I mean, we had a, a, a producer, he's passed now, John Daly, who was infamous, but he was an extraordinary producer because he would somehow get films made. And the way he got this one made was he made a deal for, with the Czech government, the, the Russians and the Czechs, to uh, make a cheap, he got an incredibly cheap studio deal behind the Iron Curtain. Well, yeah, because who wants to make a film behind the Iron Curtain? Right, um, right. So it was like <laughs> yeah. I had 140, I had a crew of 140 checks. I had four interpreters. The whole thing was, it's a film in itself. But um, how, did, how did you get convinced Christopher Lee to, to come aboard? It sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds like um, not ship of fools, but. Well, no, he didn't need much convincing. Well, first of all, we were mates and uh, we'd done Captain Invincible. And mm-hmm. then um, he said, what he said to me was, you know, uh, my dear boy, I've, I've made uh, so many Dracula movies and I've, I've never made a <laughs> werewolf movie. And I think I should have one werewolf oh. movie on my resume. Oh, that's, that's so warm. nice. <laughs> oh. so, so that was, that, that, that was it. And also, you know, the, the adventure of making a, shooting a film behind the Iron Curtain, that's what appealed to me as well. Well, how many films have been made behind the Iron Curtain before you, uh, uh, before you made that film? Yentl and Amadeus. That's right. I forgot about Yentl. Wow. Yes. Yentl. Yeah, Yentl wow. and Amadeus and Howling too. Wow. Yes. So, really? Uh, what company? Very early. <laughs> wow. Very early. So, hmm. you know, this is uh, really, I mean, the, I, I, Bill knows this because we've been friends for a long time, but I'm fascinated by untold stories. You know, history is so full of untold stories. And Christopher right. Lee being a, a prominent actor in intelligence, one of many, as I say, to be a great study, is a great untold story. And well, uh, I just, if I can talk about another project, if it's okay, yes, Bill. Yes, you can. Of course. And Nancy, uh, um, just, I'm just reminded by the guys, the six bicycles, is like making a movie in World War I. Mm-hmm. There's an Australian general called... Um, Sir John Monash, and he's, he's, he was an extraordinary general, and he was put in charge on the, uh, he was put in charge at the, in 1918 of 200,000 Australian troops, mm-hmm. and he crashed through the German lines on August 8th, 1918, and mm-hmm. basically gave the German uh, command a nervous breakdown, literally, and mm-hmm. within three months, the war was over. He, this guy invented the concepts uh, uh, for better or for worse of, of, of what we now call Blitzkrieg. And oh. I've just been you know, coming across him, and I'm, I was looking him up in um, uh, the British, British histories of World War I, and in many of the prominent histories, he's not even in the index. <laughs> and then I found out, you know, well, why not? Why? Uh, then I found out he was the only... Um, only foreigner ever allowed to command American troops, and he had some. He was commanding some American troops in that big battle. He, the King of England came out and uh, after he crashed through and knighted him on the battlefield the first time that had been done in two hundred years. Well, why was why is he being scrubbed out of history? He was Jewish. He's the oh. only Jewish general, only <laughs> Jewish general in British military history. Wow! And so the. So, you know, anti-Semitism, unfortunately, obviously, is uh, alive and well in certain parts of the world. But I, I thought that's, that was an incredible story. The first, well, you're actually, you're filming that, right? 
you're, I'm going to film that. Yeah, we're, we're making a yeah. documentary first. But so you know, you have to you scratch your head. You know, what are we really? What history are we? Um, what are we really seeing? What are we told? We're, we're just not told enough. And of course, it goes into the you know the stranger aspects too. And uh, we don't need to get into um, ufology uh, as no, much as I'd like to. Before, before, before we, with, with before we both, leave, um, yeah, I wanted to just talk about three days in Auschwitz a little bit because <clears throat> it, it seems that. Uh oh, lost Nancy. Bill, you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here, we're and we're losing you too. I think we should go on a break because you're both uh, starting to have Skype issues. Or, well, actually, no, let's see if Nancy gets back on. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Yes, I can hear you fine. Yes. So, um, yeah. so uh, uh, you said three days in Auschwitz. Yes, three days. No, no, Bill, 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 let's go on a break. We're, we're having static on my end over here. Let's go on a break. Okay, so we're going okay, so to take a break. It's 11 o'clock. We're going to take a break, and well, 11 o'clock in the East Coast, and we'll be back after a couple of messages, and we're going to refresh the Skype signal. Okay, so hang on, and we'll be right back. Expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant. 
instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. And we are back with our newly refreshed Skype signal with our guest, Philippe Mora. And right before the break, we were talking about Philippe's movie, Three Days at Auschwitz. So, Nancy, why don't you ask the question you were asking? Well, in addition to all the other things about how it must have been for you, because your mother missed it by a day, I hear, from the uh, uh, of actually going in there, um, you mentioned there has been um, more interest right now in the amount of treasure, if you will, that has been lost from an entire race of people. And that strikes me as something that we're beginning to hear more. I mean, we know there are Holocaust deniers, but the treasure is real and your entire family is a family of artists. And so all the lost artwork, um, that must be heartbreaking as well. Um, and so we were just talking about this new treasure that they think they have found. Could, could we talk about that a little bit? Well, look, it's a fascinating story. Um, there's been... Uh, well, let me back. back. The, the, uh, the Nazis looted every country that they invaded, and they invaded a lot of countries. And the gold and the treasure really has never been recovered. And uh, I think this is the uh, tip of the iceberg. Uh, they've located this train apparently by x-rays, and it's in the area, uh, uh, ironically, of Auschwitz. It's, it's under what is it's in Poland now, but the area was not Poland at the time of the end of the war. It was German. It was Breslau. And actually, Breslau was called Fortress Breslau. There were fanatical Nazis there. And they um, were fanatical to the extent that they kept fighting even after Hitler suicided. And, wow. um, and so it, it, it makes sense that they had buried, buried there, um, under mountains, you know. So, look, it's an ongoing story. I don't know the details. I think this is a story that's going to be go on for you know, at least Nazi treasure. Right, and yes. there was a really bad movie, a bad Hollywood movie recently that just kind of botched the whole concept of it, but there were, there were people set upon the trail of trying to find things that are just lost to history, and I think that's just Very a story that, you know. Uh, John Frankenheimer made, which touched on it, called The Train. Yes, oh. I remember that movie. Like a white movie about the, the with Paul Schofield and Burt Lancaster. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of exciting uh, history to be uncovered still. Uh, about well, the World War II. Well, one of the stories, of course, I mean, you knew the story of Sam Goldberg, um, who has since died, and he was a transport commando at Auschwitz. He was in the Canada barracks. And one of the stories he would tell would be that when the um, prisoners got off the trains and they were told to take off all their clothing, since he had been a garment worker in the city of Lodz, Poland, he knew where 
people would hide their jewelry and their rings and their gold and and um he would go through the clothing of the people that were on their way to the chambers and he knew exactly where to cut open um various seams to find hidden jewelry and so obviously the guards would take it but a lot of it he was able to secret and would actually buy rifles from the from the german guards and when i think it was the romanian uh partisans who um tried to blow up the crematoria in the camps and was and and wanted to blow up the um some of the chambers at uh, auschwitz it was it was goldberg who actually managed to get the rifles from the guards bury them in the shice fields and the fertilizer fields outside of um in the camp and then recover them and it was a rebellion it was an insurrection inside the camp that would have worked but there just weren't enough partisans to overpower the nazi guards well that's a fantastic story um and uh i think so much more is yet to come it was only 3 years ago that the new york times announced that they these researchers and academics on the east coast had discovered 40,000 I'll just repeat that number 40,000 more concentration camps between Berlin and Moscow that had not previously been really found. wow but we wow. don't know the extent of this I mean you can look it up but we don't know the extent of really what happened I mean, I think we're still somehow in world, we're still in the propaganda uh, phase wow. of World War II we don't really know what happened or why I mean no one even really knows why it happened Uh, well, I just well, made oh, a, that's true. I just made a film called Three Days in Auschwitz, which was kind of a personal uh, approach to it because uh, eight of my family were killed in Auschwitz, and I never wanted to visit Auschwitz. To be honest, it was just uh, to, you right. know, it's just not the kind of thing you want to do. But uh, I went there in 2010 when there was a retrospective of my movies at, in, in uh, Wroclaw, which used to be Breslau in Poland. I thought well I better go to Auschwitz. So then I I I after I sort of broke the curse by going there once. I I found it such an extraordinary place. Look, it's the largest cemetery in the world. And at least mm-hmm. 1.1 million people died there. So it's an extraordinary place the 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 atmosphere there and the scale is extraordinary. And uh, I I just think uh, you know and, and the really scale know is what happened. is the scale Sorry. huge or small? the scale mhm the scale is gigantic in other words on i was there on a clear day the first time and on a clear day you can't see the end of it oh. so it it was just gigantic and by the way that was just for the slaves the people who were murdered were murdered usually within 50 minutes of arriving and and mm. they and the the people who were slave labor they went in the area that I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. So it's all it is they you know there are many brilliant uh, men and women have written about this and 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 that basically what you're right about is that you can't you can't write about it. Mm-hmm. There, there's no, the words can't. aren't there. So no, the uh, I sort of gra- grappled with this with this movie I've done and um it's going to premiere in Germany actually uh next uh in September at the Oldenburg Film Festival. Well, oh, does wow. your movie have does your movie have words in it or is it all visuals? 
Well, that's a good question. Uh, mainly visuals, but and it has my it has me being quite personal about why I'm making the film because uh, basically because of, of my family that died. It's a tribute to my the people, not just my family. It's just a tribute to the to the people who died so that they can be remembered. I mean, I think it's very sad that, there, that there's still people saying it never happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, it's sad. So it's a tiny, it's a tiny gesture uh, of, of remembrance. But do you know, and, and you mentioned this just a couple of minutes ago, that the full story has never been told because partly the full story is still going on today. Uh, for example, um, the Allies, besides taking all the German rocketeers, the uh, Werner von Braun's and the Hermann Oberths and people like that. We also took a lot of the material from the Mengele experiments at Auschwitz and other medical experiments from the concentration camps, and we simply took that. And in this one, in this one instance, at Harvard in the 1950s, there was this psychology professor named Harry Murray, and he been under contract to the Navy to test the resilience of people because those were part of the tests that um, were being conducted by Mengele um, at Auschwitz. And so he was developing psychological tests. One of the very young, and it turns out to be at-risk students that he was testing was a 17-year-old boy uh, by the name of Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski became the Unabomber, and he literally broke this kid. And when Kaczynski was writing his manifesto, which was how he was identified by his mother and his brother, when he was writing his manifesto, it was published. And a person who plagiarized that manifesto was Anders Breivik, the mass murderer in Oslo, Norway, and at the island of Utøya, who killed all those um, young teenagers, uh, the children of um, the party members. The person who read Brevik's memo about purging the race and, and, and his own psychosis was Adam Lanza in Newtown, who wrote his own manifesto about that, literally plagiarizing Brevik, who was plagiarizing Kaczynski, who was a victim of the CIA resiliency test, which they'd gotten from Auschwitz. So, in a way, this brings us right up to today, where you have these people who are psychopaths, literally um, suffering from the same kind of pathology and taking information, grokking information from others who followed that same path. But it all started um, in the 1940s at Auschwitz. Well, look, I, I, yes, it, it did. And- the Nazis, of course, mind control and uh, mind control of the masses uh, is something that they really worked on from day one and were very adept at it. I mean, they basically, uh, this is not, uh, you know, you can talk about responsibility and obviously there were many Germans who were responsible and involved in this, but it's also true that no society had been subjected to this mass manipulation in, in media that had never, hardly even been invented, television, radio, whatever mm-hmm. you can think of, they were using in this mind control. And they were using drugs for mind control. They were, you know, if they could control 
the masses any way they could and, and the experiments they were doing at Auschwitz and, and, and not just Auschwitz, all the other places as well. Yes, all that kind of stuff uh, permeated. But look, uh, I don't think that Hitler... I think Hitler said we are barbarians and we, and we, we are barbarians. We welcome it. I mean, Hitler, he thought destruction and, uh, was, uh, was a good thing. He thought it was a productive, it was a kind of insanity, uh, Wagnerian insanity, that um, all this destruction is going to actually push society forward. And sadly, because it was a, lot a of purification. That. Sorry? Right. Because well, it no, was no, a it's, it's very, yeah. it's, full of, it's full of contradictions. Look, we landed on the moon because of World War II and the, the Nazi scientists. So, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, the morality here gets really blurred, and I don't think it's something that's easily going to be resolved on Well, on, on except in, in all the history of our, of our Earth, any time one race or one group of people want to eradicate another, it never goes well. It never ends well. Even if you no. almost eradicated the other, the other that's left, you mm. become that. It, it's it's craziness. I, that's the part I don't understand about how did the entire race of people determine that this was an okay thing to do to their fellow human beings? And how did they? How could they? You know. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think they did. I don't think they even thought about it. I mean, I think they were, uh, many of them were manipulated, uh, mm-hmm. and many were not. I mean, I guess we're talking about how could, how can you push little children? At the end of the day, how can you push little children uh, by the millions into gas ovens? Well, it just doesn't add up. I mean, it's like it's like crazy doesn't is, is not doesn't. the word that counts. Wrong. We're back to this thing about yep. how do you describe this? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you're right. Not, and- and it does it, it does drag us back to what we talked about before Philippe came on, and it's and I want to just throw this out here: all three of you guys on the show tonight have actually made um, something of, um, you know, um, an art form about things that are, I mean, Bill's done the serial killer books. And you, Philippe, I was reading about this movie called Mad Morgan. Let's see here. Mad, Man Morgan. Mad Dog Mad Morgan. Mad Dog Morgan, yeah, with Dennis Hopper. Yeah, and it's supposedly, and, and so Angel was talking before you came on about, uh, Wes Craven and Wes Craven's mm-hmm. influence on the film and it sounds like Mad Dog Morgan was an early Wes Craven type of movie and so I ask you guys we're talking about real horror and yet by the way you- Nancy real quick uh, Hitler had no horror movies to base his hatred and his evilness on true just letting that be known true true there's no but Nightmare I- on Elm Street or Friday okay, the 13th so, so my or question Psycho comes, none of that my question comes then is make evil. But then, therefore, is is the concept of making horror movies, the concept of writing books about horror, the concept of studying horror movies, is that actually a good thing for the race? Because we somehow release the icky id or something, or is it, does is it a bad thing? Because it's you know that line of of uh, what is it called? The line of um, custody, the chain of custody that Bill was just talking about of the insane evil that ended up at Adam Lanza and started at Auschwitz. I mean, do we, are, we, are we responsible as entertainers for bringing the wrong kind of stuff forward? That's kind of my question. Uh, a question hmm. for Philippe. 
Well, I think uh, uh, yes and no. I, I know that sounds glib, but yes and no. I think there. Uh, I think there is such an evil movie. Um, that, but but you've got to have, you've got to be a very impressionable mind, or you've got to be not correct. I mean, there's Philippe, a famous we're, we're story about Philippe. we're losing you, Philippe. Uh, Philippe, we're losing you, Philippe. Young guy in, in England raped a woman and said he raped her because of Clockwork Orange. This is when the movie came out. And Kubrick was alarmed, obviously, and he took the film off release in England because of it. But um, Kubrick's lawyers, uh, I, I remember reading this in London, one of Kubrick's lawyers said, look, you know, I think this is nonsense because here, look at this case of the guy in Austria who just saw the sound of music and then went out and killed five people. So, I, mm. I, 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 you know, it's very hard to... Uh, uh, put a fix on that, but but I would say I think I act as a kind of and it's unhealthy. I mean, F in, Philippe, uh, Philippe, Philippe, we got to stop because you're, you, we can't understand half of the things you're saying. Uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on yeah, with your phone. Yeah, you're breaking up. Yeah, you're, you're breaking up okay. extremely bad. And so uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe get can you can you reconnect? Uh, are you on a cordless phone, by the way, Philippe? This is cordless. Yeah, that explains it. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Can you I was going to ask. We... Yeah, yeah. Yes. I can hear you now. Yes. Okay. No, I'm saying that I think these movies are a catharsis, and I think they can be helpful. I think uh, if you look at a, Japan, for example, has really horrifying movies and horrifying comic strips, um, and their their crime rate, uh, murder rate, is much less than ours, but their movies are more horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. A very complicated equation. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and that's what I was hoping to hear because, you know, um, you guys are all talking about what's Craven. I never saw any of his movies, and in fact.
And we are back with uh, a better connection. Uh, sorry for the connection. Um, Skype sometimes is difficult with cordless phones, but we're yes. back with Philippe. And what we were talking about and, and, and Philippe was explaining was how, uh, and we'll uh, do this again, how horror films like Wes Craven's films, like some of Philippe's films, how they are kind of a catharsis to bleed off some of the feelings that people have. So, Philippe, did you want to um, repeat what you were talking about? Yes, I think that some of them are really healthy. And I, I, uh, obviously, I just, uh, well, in my opinion, some are not. Like, I don't really think what's called, what's referred to as torture porn is good for anybody. But the, I remember as a kid, you know, Seeing Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, <laughs> they were scary, but I, I but it was it was a catharsis. There's no scientific uh, uh, proof, as far as I know, that a, a horror film is going to cause anyone to do something uh, terrible. But there's a lot of proof that if if people have guns in the house, they do something terrible. They can do something terrible. Uh, in in most societies where there's gun control. Uh, there's far less violence with guns. Uh, it's not rocket science. Um, but uh, with, with horror movies, uh, you teenagers, it's kind of a date movie. It's, it, it's, it's, it is a, an incredibly violent comic strips and incredibly violent movies. But they don't have the violence we have here. And so there's no direct correlation. I think I told the story about how Kubrick took Clockwork Orange off release in 1968 in London right, when it right, came out because right. a guy, his defense said he raped a woman because he saw Clockwork Orange and um, took, took it off release. But one of Kubrick's lawyers gave an interview and he said, look, I do think it's nonsense because here's a case of a guy who saw The Sound of Music in Austria. So there's no correlation. And and what's so fascinating is that um, one of the questions that was plaguing um, Stanley Kramer when he was making um, when he was making uh, Judgment at Nuremberg was whether I, I'm friends with Karen Kramer was um, whether to use the actual Holocaust footage because. Uh, in, in 1961, nobody in America, no audiences in America had actually ever seen that footage. That was the first time that was actually um, played commercially in a motion picture theater. And there was a real discussion about using that. And Stanley Kramer used it. And uh, it was a shock. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a whole history there. It's a whole separate story. Uh you know, they only just released Hitchcock's, uh, the film that he was involved in, that the British made about the concentration camps. Are you familiar with that? Yes, vaguely familiar. I've never seen yeah. it. Yeah. Well, what happened was the reason the concentration camp footage was not shown at the end of the war was that the Cold War had started, and we wanted the Germans on our side. And a political decision was made at the top to not, uh, not alienate the Germans by showing these terrible things that had been done by uh, the Nazis. So, so they, for, for, for quite a while, there was a clampdown on the concentration camp footage. This is, you know, politics interfering in reality, which it does all the time. Right. And so 
also at the end of the war, um, it was Henry Kissinger who at the end of the war was because we were so afraid of, of, of uh, the Soviet bloc that Henry Kissinger was bringing entire brigades of um, German troops into the United States orbit. And, and they actually built up our spy ring in Eastern Europe against uh, the East Germans, against the Stasi. And, and, that, and, and in the early 1950s, there were a whole series of scandals about how our intelligence services, that there was this cross-pollination uh, between the, uh, the Germans who were in our orbit and the Germans who were in the Soviet orbit sharing information. And uh, that became a scandal in the CIA in 1956. Well, we need to uncover some more stories, Bill. <laughs> it's just this, oh, we it's, really it's do. The I untold, mean, you know, the, these untold stories I think are really important, and what, I'm sure you, your listeners do as well. Well, one of the striking things to me was when we were filming um, in the third season of UFO Hunters in Berlin, uh, and then in Poland. One of the um, stories, right. one of the stories that we covered, we were at. It was ostensibly a health spa in Poland, but it was actually it was where the Germans were experimenting with space medicine, and the person who was in charge of that facility was this person called Struckhold. Struckhold became he was the developer of the spacesuit for NASA, but. The experiments, and, and this was on dealing with um, hyperbaric pressure, and we were actually were in one of those um, pressure units that he was using to test human resiliency to pressure. Well, it really wasn't a pressure chamber. It it, it really wasn't a pressure chamber. We it, we lost him, uh, Bill. We're trying okay. to get Philip back. His call dropped. Ring, ring, ring. Ring, ring, ring. Live on air. Ring, ring, ring. One more time. Because he's probably still on the phone, not knowing it dropped. Right. Yeah, that's normally what happens. Hi, you've reached Dominic Moore. I can't get... Well, then. There's that. Okay, so I will eventually he'll figure it out that he's not talking anymore to anybody live, and right, you call in or we'll call him back or one or the other. I'm telling him that we lost the call. Yep. So okay, no. So one of the things that uh, that really um, had surprised me was that um, this person who was very famous at NASA, Schrockold, he he developed the spacesuit that our astronauts wore. This guy was testing at on concentration camp prisoners in Poland at what was ostensibly a health spa. And, you know, like you realize who were the people who were the guinea pigs for Werner von Braun, for um, this person Struckhold, for, for all these German rocket scientists, especially in dealing with atomic energy, because the Germans were experimenting with atomic energy in Poland in um, 1944, 1945, especially as the Soviet troops closed in, mm-hmm. they were concentration camp prisoners. And so 
there were so many, and nobody knew this story. The people on the crew, they were all young, were actually shocked to find out what was going on. Like we all think, oh, the German rocket program, oh, it was so far advanced, and yeah, and then Operation Paperclip, we took the rocket program. But the people who ran that program, people like Werner von Braun and Struckhold and, and uh, Kurt Davis, who actually wound up being one of NASA's directors at Cape Canaveral, these people were SS, and these people were, they were true believers. It wasn't just, oh, you're being drafted, so you have to serve in, 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 in the German army. They were actually true believers. And the Soviet German rocket scientists and the American German rocket scientists still communicated with each other after the war. That was one of the reasons why the Soviets were so successful in launching Sputnik before we did, because right. they had all of yeah. our notes. They had all yep. the notes from their colleagues who had been repatriated under um, under Operation Paperclip. But guys, but guys, do you think we could maybe take a break and get Philippe back? Well, we are hitting that uh, that time for a break. Um, I think the, uh, it, you know, I think the problem comes about because we as sensitive artists, when we hear the word landline, we think all of our phone problems are solved. And I think that's why we had a sense of casualness about tonight because it's been a landline situation. And I think, once again, Skype might be the problem. I think Skype is the villain. I mean, no, I the, really... the, it's not. It's not Skype. The thing is, Skype doesn't uh, deal well with landline phones that are cordless. Uh, anytime that's like a recipe for disaster. They just don't communicate well with each other. But I don't understand. I really it, don't. It's understand. funny. It's funny, Nancy. As we we're talking, even before we we're having major like issues with uh, with his line. Um, he was breaking up a little bit, as you know. Yeah. Keith was asking me, uh, "Is he on a cordless phone?" Like he could tell because of the way that it's sounding. That's the way a landline sounds. It's just the connection is always really bad, and Skype usually does what it did tonight. Hmm. Now, his cell phone going out, that's just, you know, bad cell phone connection. Yeah, and also my Nothing phone, my that. Skype's going out um, throughout the evening. I, almost every time I talk, it's as if uh, I do know Skype's been playing around a lot with ducking. They want to do automatic ducking to smooth the conversations. I don't think they should mess with that, but that's what's going on. So maybe, who knows? But if we perhaps can reconnect, we well, let's could. Well, let's do this. Let's go on a break, and when we come we, back, we'll get it back on the line. So I, will, so I will announce a break. So we are your co-hosts, Bill and Nancy Burns, on Future Theater Live. We have our guest, yes. Philippe Mora, who we will try to get back to you in this connection. Stay tuned for a few messages for the last segment of the show, and we will be back after this. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with Key Information Solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let Key Information Solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. 
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network, live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth. And we are back on Future Theater Live. We cannot reconnect with Philippe, a whole bunch of cell phone landline problems. So, but here's what we're going to do. So, if you um, folks out there have any questions, uh, let's do some open lines if you'd like. Um, Angel, why don't you give the phone number? Sure thing. 786 245 8127. That's east of the Rockies, west of the Rockies, north of the equator. Inside the Rockies and everything. Inside the Rockies. If you tap the Rockies, you drink some beer, you could do that. Call that call that number. You'll be live well, on air. I can give you a little news. Our friend Wise Frog, um, uh, during the time that I was worrying about the hurricane, did. He was tapping the Rockies? No, he wrote oh. and said that birds, birds were going crazy. And this is in Ohio. Uh, seriously crazy. Uh, a flock of many different species flying overhead like they were lost and cannot find their way. It was really weird, and I just throw that out there. And Philippe, if you hear us, um, you could call the line. That yeah, might you work. could call it. Yes. So, uh, so, so. Anyway, so we do have open lines, but um, one of the pieces of news is that. Um, the Mickey Rooney book comes off press in two weeks. I'm very excited about that. And here's a, piece, uh, uh, here's a piece of news that really fascinated me, I have to tell you. And this is about the Mickey Rooney story. Um, we have uncovered through um, Mickey's biological daughter, Carrie Rooney, Carrie Rooney Mack, that part of the whole story of Mickey Rooney was that um, in 2011 – he was complaining of elder abuse, uh, the physical abuse, financial abuse, all kinds of abuse. 
uh, Mickey Rooney was a basket case. I mean, this is this this we all know. He was actually a feral child, raised backstage from when he was one, one and a half years old, in a burlesque theater, foul language, lots of booze, lots of naked women. This for a one and a half year old child, and he grew up that way. Well, he he never grew up. That was the whole point. So now he's uh, in his nineties. He is um, suffering from all kinds of psychological problems, and he testifies before the Senate on elder abuse. Well, the court puts him under its conservatorship and appoints his two stepchildren as his caregivers, and he moves out of his house in Thousand Oaks in with his stepchildren. Well, what we found out just a couple of days ago, and then he rewrites his will to take ever his, his, his eighth wife, Jan, his biological children, and there are a lot of biological children, out of the will. And he lives everything, which, by the way, didn't amount to much, to... Um, his younger stepchild, Mark. What we found out just in the past couple of days is that in the weeks before he died, maybe the months before he died, Mickey Rooney wrote a letter to one of his younger daughters explaining that he wanted to leave all of his money, such as it was, to his children, to his biological children, and for homeless veterans. Mickey had served in World War II. He was an army veteran. He'd served in World War II. He was in an entertainment unit run by the producer, Josh Logan, who was a lieutenant or a captain. And uh, they were actually um, entertaining troops on the tops of Jeeps on the front lines. They were, in fact, the entertainment they were doing, it's really funny, the Germans would stop shooting just to hear the entertainment <laughs> from from Mickey's Jeep shows, um, the uh, the trumpet players and and this and is Mickey World would War sing. One or two. This is World War Two. This is uh, this was in Belgium, um, right before they crossed the Rhine. This was in it's a Belgium. whole different side of the Germans. A whole different oh, side yeah. of the Germans. They actually stopped firing so they could listen to the Jeep shows. Everybody knew at a certain point especially the German high command, that after the Russian front, after the Soviet front collapsed in the east in 1943, that the war was effectively over, that uh, Operation Barbarossa had failed, that the German invasion of the Soviet Union had failed, and that the Soviet troops would soon be in Berlin. And so it was really at this point, fighting a losing battle, one of the things that one of the concentration camp um, survivors told us, Sam Goldberg, who we were talking about with um, Philippe Mora, was that at a certain point, the, the, uh, uh, the, um, at Auschwitz, they had stopped um, gassing the Jewish prisoners and had stopped burning the bodies because they were burning the bodies of the German troops that uh, were coming back from the Soviet front, mainly because the Germans didn't want the civilian population in Germany to know wow. about the tremendous casualties that uh, the Wehrmacht had suffered uh, on the uh, least. Bill, there you yes. go. Yes. Yeah, so I lost the, you for a second. 
Okay, yeah. no, so the, so the, second. No, the, it's uh, almost as though the subject matter tonight is so frisky that, that Skype can't deal with it. It seems like it. I mean, <laughs> uh, at least in my ears, you guys are cutting out a lot, but I'm just letting, you know, I'm letting Keith be the one to have to decide how it's all sounding because I figure it goes through Angel's ears, it goes through Keith's ears, that it goes to the listener's ears, right? Well, Skype is right. coming in and out, at least on on these headphones. But no, but, but yeah, but my headphones and your headphones, um, I'm not. I'm trying not to freak you, out. You don't sound fine. It's just once in a while your internet's uh, going y- down. Yeah, see, I think I'm I'm wondering if it's using this new computer instead of the iPad. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe you're using too much bandwidth in that computer. Do you have maybe. browser? Do you have a browser open with a bunch of stuff? No, on? no. This is a brand Ooh. new thing that that. Yeah. That would be just the opposite. The iPad should be. What you know, is it? A Mac or a PC? It's oh, a, it's, it's a it's a Mac Mini. It's, I oh, think that it's, that explains it. That's a Mac Mini. That explains why. It's the it's the same one Keith has, I think. But anyway, so that so I mean that was that so this was part of the issue of of um, World War Two that um, and that's what Sam Goldberg told me. So it 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 you know talking about World War Two, but anyway that was the thing about Mickey Rooney. So what we found out was that. Before his death, maybe before he rewrote his will, there was this letter. So um, that's going to be part of this big, big revelation when we're because we're going to be on CBS this morning and Good Morning America. Yeah, but you've already gone to press, right? The book is on press now. It comes off press in two weeks. So this information is not in the book, which is it's too bad. not in the book, but it's going to well. Given the legal vet for this book, I have to tell you, it wouldn't have been because we couldn't have reprinted the letter. We couldn't even reprint. Mickey wrote letters to his second wife, Betty Jane, from uh, Belgium on Christmas in 1944. And we couldn't reprint the actual text of that letter because that text, that letter as an intellectual property physically belongs to the Rooney estate. So we didn't print it. Question, Bill. Uh, Carrie uh, Rooney, that's his daughter, right? Yes, Carrie Rooney Mack. Does she realize how close she came from me to being called Carrie Macaroni? No, but I'll tell you how close <laughs> it actually came. Mickey started a company called Mickey's Macaroni. And the whole point was it was Mickey McGuire Macaroni. That was the name of the company. There were like ten companies he started. All of yeah, which you got to you got to tell you got to you got to tell us some of them. Some of them were the, like the worst ideas ever. Oh right, there was one. Called, I like this one already. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> no, there was one. No, 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 there was Mickey McGuire Macaroni. Then Mickey had this idea to have square hot dogs on a bun, and it was called Mickey's Weenies. And th- 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 that wait, wait, you, when you say square, you mean shaped like hamburgers instead shape, of no, or like pencil squares, squares on no, shaped like squares on buns, but they were actually hot dogs. And he <laughs> wanted to have it at this restaurant, it was way out, nobody was in the parking lot. He took his producer for Sugar Babies, Terry Allen Kramer, out to this location in California, and, and she said, There's nobody here. Why would you have this restaurant here? There's not one car in the parking lot. Anyway, that was one. Then the other, this is another classic one. He was good friends with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was his advisor. Donald Trump actually uh, was one of the investors in the um, Will Rogers Gaieties, which was, a pl- which was a musical for Marla Maples, Donald Trump's wife at the time, but also with Mickey Rooney. 
And so Mickey Rooney was getting all excited about investing in this in this hotel outside of Philadelphia in Downingtown, the Downingtown Inn. And Donald Trump said to Mickey, I'm telling you, this is a bad investment. This is a loser investment. You will lose all your money. Don't do it. Well, turns out Mickey invested in the Downingtown Inn. And I remember in the 1970s, you would see these pictures of Mickey Rooney in the New York Times. Visit me at the Downingtown Inn. Donald nobody Trump, goes I, there. <laughs> nobody goes there. It was a miserable failure. He had this other company. He had this. Oh, wait, didn't he like, have edible underwear? He had. No, that wasn't it. Wow. Are His you serious? Underwear, <laughs> the underwear that he tried to convince a company to buy into was disposable underwear. They were called tip offs. In other words, you just. And ripoffs. You'd rip the underwear off and throw it away, disposable underwear. <laughs> then he had this brilliant idea for it was called tip offs. It was a disposable bra. And you just rip the bra off and throw it away. Well, I got to <laughs> tell you, Maiden. You could do that now with any bra. But this was disposable. So you're not. Just, okay. This is not Victoria's Secret. Um, Maiden form disposed of the idea <laughs> faster than you could dispose of the bra. That's how quick you'd have to market it to sluts. <laughs> yeah. He had an idea for soft or any woman in Miami. Talk anyway. about this a brilliant idea for soft drinks, carbonated soft drinks for dogs. <laughs> wow, puppy pop, puppy pop, a soft drink for dogs. So, puppy Coca Cola. Yeah, I if the dog now. doesn't make enough noise from its other end, this puppy pop is exactly what you need for a good night's sleep. I'm telling you, these ideas were insane. <laughs> and he, he was shoveling. He didn't have money to begin with because it, was, because it all went to taxes and his ex-wives. But he, whatever money he made, he was shoveling. And everybody was telling him, don't do this. It is stupid. And every con man who would come along and say to Mickey, oh, the, here's a great idea, Mickey. You really should do this. A carbonated iced tea, which actually, oh, um, his other idea was as he was going bald, um, he came up with the idea for spray on hair. Which now, oh, no kidding. Now that's a big thing, yeah. Now it's a big thing. Then it wasn't. It's not that big a thing, really. Oh, no, that's a multi-million dollar a year industry. I mean, now have you ever just... seen spray-on hair on any? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I actually worked with somebody who had it. Yes, yes. And, and the funniest thing, mm-hmm. I mean, he always looked like he had great, you know, great set of, you know, great hair, like great hair to do, but it was all spray-on hair. And <laughs> one day he was, he was sweating really bad. It was a, at a dealership <laughs> I worked at. And you can see the, like, the lines of just the black sweat dripping down from his <laughs> exactly. forehead. Exactly, yes. And we, we looked at him and we were like, is mm. this Dude painting his hair? Is that what it is? Because we couldn't figure it out. It must be pretty good if you don't. Well, well, uh, there was this uh, checkout person at the... at the Ralphs in the marina in, in, in Los Angeles, in Marina Del Rey, there was, and, and she'd obviously had chemotherapy, and she sprayed on a head of Ooh. hair. And, I mean, people would be stopping and staring. She was a real sweetie pie, but, I mean, it literally was spray on. But See, there's two different kinds of spray-on. Hold on. First of all, there's yeah. two different kinds of spray-on hair. There's the one that actually bonds to whatever hair you have left and yes. thickens that hair as well as just painting you know, your scalp black. And then there's just a Ron Popeil, whatever that guy was, uh, who just would spray your hair with paint. That was the original one. Ron Popeil, how quickly we forget. 
Yes. Yes. Shout out to Ron Peel. Who's and it's got to be a big shout out because he's dead. But uh, yes. And you know who else is dead? I I I I don't know why. It just seems like I'm finding out people are dead that I didn't know had died. I didn't know Wayne Dyer had died. Oh yes, uh, he died today. Wayne Dyer. And yes. also the fellow who wrote uh, the brain, all the brain books. The uh, Oliver Sacks is dead. So Oliver, Oliver Sacks, Wes Craven, and Wayne Dyer all died in the past couple of days. That's yeah. true. I'm not going to get over this Wes Craven thing uh, very soon. I mean, that, that's one of my all-time favorite directors. And uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is really like my all-time favorite horror movie. Well, so, not to be a dead horse, but what makes what makes it more than just what makes it worth seeing? Let's put it that way. What makes it worth seeing the first time or repeatedly? Like no, no, the first time. What was the main attraction of Nightmare on Elm Street? All my friends telling me, dude, you're going to freak out. This is such a scary movie. you got to watch it. And just, uh, you know, as a kid, you like to have those thrills. Yeah. You don't see life like adults see life. Like, you don't think of consequences of doing crazy things. You just like watching stuff that, that you know, gets you to jump and gets you, gets you scared. And as a kid, I loved that. I actually saw it in the mid-'80s when I was a very little kid, very small child. Should not have watched it at that, at that time probably, but I saw it, and I loved it. And from that age... I've become a huge fan. In fact, my father, when I was a kid, would take me to go see the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. I saw all the sequels with him in theaters. All of them. Even the Jason vs. Freddy. We went to all these movies together. He's a huge fan also. And he was the one that kind of said, okay, yeah, I'll let you watch this. I know it's very gory and it's very messed up. But I love these movies too. He was a fan as well. And he's like, yeah, I'll watch it with you so you're not as scared. And when you watch it a, f a couple times, it, it helps to desensitize you also to a lot of this stuff. But why would you want to be desensitized? Don't you want to live in a society in which you don't need to be desensitized? No, not at all. Because be the society itself does not condone violence, so you don't have to be sensitized. No, sometimes, to sometimes violence. it's good. No, sometimes it's good to see on a on a movie or a TV screen, or or to see uh, you know something like this, something violent, something gory, something, to see the most horrible thing you could possibly see happen in a fictional way, so you know what it looks like, so you know what to avoid in your life in the real world, to not be that person, to not do those things. It's it's a you know it's, it's a way to escape the real world and the reality of what life is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, You're just not a fan of horror movies. That's all it is, Nancy. That's it's okay. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's yeah. acceptable. Yeah, it's Nothing true. I mean, it. somebody's got to watch Project Runway. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Somebody's got to have bad taste in movies. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. But Wes Craven, one of the greatest filmmakers in the horror genre ever. Uh, to me, he was like the George Lucas of horror movies. Uh, you know, George Lucas changed the landscape of cinema in '77 with Star Wars. In in many ways. Wes Craven did the same thing for the horror genre with A Nightmare on Elm Street and his horror movies. What so. about Kubrick? Are you a fan of Kubrick? Stanley Kubrick? Mm-hmm. Oh, huge fan of his. Okay. Just because it, it seems like <clears throat> I don't want to forget him, even though he's, you know, a little older than Passed these other on, guys. Right. Yeah. Well, oh, remember, Kubrick well, remember oh, genius. Uh, I mean, here's a case where um, A Clockwork Orange was written by Anthony Burgess. So it's right. not as though Kubrick actually wrote that thing. I mean, he right. actually took a very, very frightening... I mean, it's a frightening book when you read that Disturbing book. Disturbing book, yeah. Right, oh. and just before yeah. Philippe was cut off, he was saying the most, uh, to my mind, the funniest thing he, was, he said all night, or the most enlightening, was that, um, you know, that it wasn't Clockwork Orange that caused people to kill people. It, you know, same thing happened in Austria, uh, Austria with Sound of Music. 
And anybody yeah. who has sat through Sound of Music. <laughs> That's understandable, though. If you yes. sit through that movie, you're going to want to kill somebody. It's yeah. just the way it is. But know? it is. But, but okay. So, and so you guys, and that was pretty nice to hear. But, I was really glad see, to here's hear that. The th- yeah, but see, here's the thing about Clockwork Orange that that was real. I mean, those were the kinds of experiments that our own government was doing, and I'm sure with collaboration right. with the British. If yep. you look at what was going on in Canada in the very early 1950s, 51, 52, with um, people like Wilder Penfield and Ewan Cameron and, and this person, Donald Hebbs. Donald Hebbs invented the concept of a hierarchical neural network. That's how important he is for the modern computer age. But um, back in Canada, he was doing this from the point of view of human neural networks. Well, when you realize what they were doing and why they were doing it, I mean, I, I really, this is a book that I want to um, um, actually. What, did you, what do you mean by hierarchical in the neural network sense of it? What, what does that mean exactly? What did he invent? He was developing the, uh, the theory of how neural pathways become nested in other neural pathways so that it's kind of like the law of the conservation of motion. You don't have to recreate the same thing over and over again. Once you build a neural pathway, it stays built as long as it's being used and and stays dormant. And one neural pathway could be nested inside another neural pathway, which is fascinating because that's how language itself works. We're hardwired for that mm-hmm. kind of embedding of one thing in terms yep. of another. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the work of Noam Chomsky as a linguist, not as a political commentator, he's an idiot as a commentator, but as a linguist, he was brilliant. He was the one who explained um, all the way back in structural linguistics how various um, phrases become nested in other phrases, and it's a hierarchy. And this whole concept of human neural hierarchies was developed in the very early 1950s, and that became the basis I'd love to have Steve Wozniak on the air because he's the one who invented um, the floppy disk controller. Right. Uh, uh, that was the, uh, the basis for how at this dawn of um, personal computing, mm-hmm. personal digital computing, how they were able to actually save space by building these embedded hierarchical neural networks, digital networks within digital networks. And that's really how... Uh, uh, computers work now. Amazing so, man, Steve Wozniak. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and, and, Brilliant and man. I just finished a manuscript today with uh, Jim Sanders, oh, who really? was on Art Bell um, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And um, th- the point of the TWA Flight at 100 book is that it was not a human being that shot down the plane. And that was one of the, it was a robot. And that was one of the, a a digital robot, but a robot. And that was something that Steve Wozniak and Stephen Hawking and Ray Kurzweil. And and James, who was on last week, talked about. That's right. He has seen this with his own eyes um, as a soldier in the field. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's we, real. We, it's we, absolutely actually, real. Yeah, it's actually real. So, so it's as if 
we created a Frankenstein monster that's actually turning on us because that's what happened in 1996 when um, a computer picked out a target, the plane flies through, the computer launched a missile, the missile homes in on the wrong target on, on a 747. And we have to wind it up. We're winding it we up. Are. We're winding it up. So uh, Nancy is going <laughs> to do the music for Midnight in the Desert. Stay tuned for Midnight in the Desert. I am trying to get a hold of somebody for next week, Marvin Kaplan. Marvin Kaplan, if I can do this, I'll see. He's very old. By Mark, the way, Art Bell, do you know who he has uh, on next? Yes, Dr. David Darling. David, David Darling. Darling. Dr. Darling. Right. Dr. Darling. Right. It will be Dr. fabulous. Take fabulous. Marvin Kaplan Good was night. in the original we have War, to say War 1938. Good night, everybody from Future <laughs> Theater. Your co-host, Bill, that's me and Nancy Burns on the Dark Matter Digital Network. Stay tuned for Art Bell, and we will see you next week, which is Labor Day. Good night. <laughs>